Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go ahead and give us a call. 291-6901 is the local number. And for outside the local area, you can use the area code 225. And you can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go. Sure wish you would. Always enjoy hearing folks all around the town, all around the country. Even all, all around, around the world. world. There, there you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you may be, you give us a call. And I see we've got Trey has been patiently holding. Good morning, Trey. Good morning, Lewis and Brian. I called you all last week about the oil pressure in my Tahoe. I just wanted to thank you for your advice and help. I pulled off that sensor, and it was barely hanging together. Oh, yeah. Red. Well, and good I- deal. That's where my oil leak was coming from, mm-hmm. so pop that in there, and it's a, a lot cheaper than replacing a motor. Yeah, so a whole, whole lot cheaper. <laughs> well, I sure appreciate the call, man. All right, y'all have a All great right, day. Trey, thank you, man. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. And, you know, those, those little sending units always give trouble. They do. One time or another, they're going to give you some trouble. I'd say almost 100% failure rate over the life of a vehicle. Oh, yeah. Particularly Definitely. on Chevrolet V8s. Definitely. We've seen a lot, a lot of trouble with that. And sometimes, it's ironic, sometimes they will go bad and they will peg all the way over like 90 PSI. Right. Other times they go bad and they'll start dropping to zero. They just, the range goes off on them. Particularly exactly. if they're leaking because yeah, it leaks. if a little bit of, it's got like a like a little orifice at the very bottom. It keeps full pressure from, in other words, if full pressure hit it all the time, it would jump up and down so much because pressure is constantly varying. Correct. So they put a tiny orifice in the bottom that only allows a certain amount of pressure to go through. It builds inside, which kind of balances it out. Now, if it's got a leak, what happens is that when the pressure of the engine does drop down, which it does at an idle, it may drop for, further you know, than it's far further to. than what it should be, so it could go to zero and all that. So, yeah, always, always suspect that when you start to see an all-pressure problem, particularly if you don't have the other, like, knocking noises and all that kind the of telltale signs The telltale of a, signs. The engine with no oil pressure. Well, high oil consumption and smoking and, right. you know, an engine that knocks and rattles, well, probably not going to be the fix there. That's it. I have seen a number of times, and, you know, some vehicles have a feature where if the oil pressure goes near zero, it will shut the engine down. Sure, because and it, it monitors that as far as a safety issue. It does, and it can be a dying problem. I remember I had a little Cadillac, a little Elante, and it started just dying on me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out why it would do that because it always run perfectly and it was in good tune and all that sort of thing. But what it was is that the oil pressure center unit was bad. And when I would make like a sharp turn or something, the oil would slosh just enough to drop it some. And although it didn't go to zero for me to look at, it went to zero on that thing and it shut the engine down. So it would die. Right, keep you from dry, uh, running without oil pressure. Mm-hmm. Also had a Toyota Land Cruiser, and what would happen is that it was hard to start. Mm-hmm. Crank, 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 right. crank, 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 right. crank, But it would not allow the engine to start until it saw oil pressure, and it wasn't building fast enough because the center unit was bad. Yep. I changed the center unit, never had another moment's trouble out of seen it. Seen that happen. Yeah. Just the way it was, the software was written in mm-hmm. it. And most vehicles, I would say, do not have that feature, but some do. Uh, a lot of the older ones do. Yeah, they, they use the oil pressure as a indicator that the oil pressure was high enough in the engine to go ahead and start it. Right, and what they would do, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, is they would cut the fuel pressure. Yep. It would cut the, the it, signal. When it, when it didn't see oil pressure, it would cut the signal to the pump and kill the fuel pressure. And I saw a lot of fuel pumps replaced oh, yeah. for a car a that lot. was hard to start or didn't want to start. And the first thing they did is check fuel pressure. Fuel no pressure, pressure was low. 
But again, they didn't do their due diligence. They didn't go upstream and say, well, is the PCM receiving the signal to enable a fuel pump? Correct. Because lots of things can cause a fuel pump not to work other than a bad fuel pump. A lot of the theft systems, the, the anti-theft immobilizer systems, will shut, down. will shut down the fuel pump. That's kind of a giveaway, though. When a, when a security system shuts down the fuel pump, mm-hmm. when you turn the key over, it'll act like it's going to start. Uh-huh. It may start for a split second and, and then, then shut die. down. And mm-hmm. that, that's pretty much an indicator of a security system well, issue. Well, if you know how it operates. Right. But if you, you got don't, them. you just say, my car is starting and dying. Right. Well. You could go three different ways there. And, again, what happens? I see this. Well, I did a fuel pressure test. Yeah, I know, but you misinterpreted the fuel exactly. pressure test. Just because you did the test doesn't mean the, you read the results correctly. If you got do a fuel pressure test and you have no fuel pressure, that does not mean the fuel pump is bad. Exactly. It just that means just you means, have no fuel pressure. Right. Exactly. Now, you have to find, do you have power and ground to the pump? Because if you're not getting a signal to the pump, you have to go upstream. The relay could be bad. Yep. It could be being interrupted for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. The all pressure sensor, all pressure like we talked for about. One, a theft system for another, and right. probably several others that don't come to my mind right now. But you can't just take one test and then assume from there. Another classic, classic example, and I've seen some really good mechanics make this mistake. Is there fuel in the tank? <laughs> <laughs> Just because the gauge shows there well, is that's right. does I, not mean there is. I've seen a fuel sender unit be bad. It shows a quarter tank. The tank is actually empty. They yep. do a fuel pressure test. There's no fuel pressure. They check for power and ground at the tank, and they replace the fuel pump. Right. Well, you kind of realize it, and when then you, they realize when you get the tank out and you start, you take the fuel pump out, and there's no fuel in the bottom That's of it. It's kind of embarrassing. Now. Yes, it is. <laughs> and you know what's even worse than that is one that won't start with a fuel, well, full fuel tank, right? Because a lot of times when a car won't start, the first thing somebody wants to do is fill it up. Mm-hmm. And when you have to pull a fuel pump with a full tank of fuel, right? It gets extremely awkward in the case that the fuel pump is bad, right? And then you went and filled the tank. Well, you just made the job a whole lot more difficult exactly i think gasoline weighs somewhere around eight pounds a gallon uh, roughly and a 30 gallon tank yeah I mean, due to numbers <laughs> that that's a, that's a very heavy awkward big plastic thing yes, to try is. to wrestle with under a car and the thing about it the new tanks they don't have a drain on them mm-hmm. none They're, of them that none, I none of the newer ones that I, I think they quit putting drains on them back in the late 60s early 70s yeah cost savings right and uh, the new ones are actually made out of a plastic polymer yeah, material. nylon kind yeah. of polymer, which is a good thing. It is. It takes people, a lot of abuse. Well, people kind of cuss that and fuss at it and said, oh, they're trying to do it. But really, if you think about it, this nylon tank is not going to rust. It's not going to dent. Exactly. And it is much more difficult to puncture. Sure. Example of that would be some of these big plastic garbage cans they have now, which hold up a whole lot better than the old metal cans did. Oh, yeah. They would take those durable. metal cans, throw them in the back of a truck, bounce them around. They were all bent up, dented up, rusty. Ugly yeah, bottom, bottom was rusted out. Bottom would corrode out. The plastic yeah. ones don't have that problem. So plastic is not always a worse choice. Sometimes it is it's a, better a better choice. Yes. It just depends. You got to have the right plastic for one thing. Correct. And it's got to be executed properly. I can remember back, and I don't know the exact day. I think it was around 1984 on the Corvettes when they went to the new body style. Uh huh. They had a problem with the rear leaf spring breaking on them. They just they, it was a big, heavy metal spring. Right, it was a monoleaf. It went from wheel to well, wheel instead eventually of Eventually, they came out with the monoleaf. But before that, they had a multi-leaf steel spring, and they were breaking them. Mm-hmm. So they came out with that carbon fiber monoleaf. Right. And everybody, oh, plastic, man. Well, I tell guess you what, what? It fixed the problem. It's still in there, too. <laughs> and it's still in there today. Yeah, it's a much, much tougher, more resilient material than the metal is sure. even. So metal 
is very, very good in many applications. In many applications, the proper choice. Yep. But in some applications, plastic will work better. Oh, yeah, definitely. So it's just one of those things. You know, I you know we get a lot of times people say, oh, you guys just don't like technology. No, that is not the case. I, I do like a lot of technology. A lot of technology is very, very good. It serves a purpose. It is cost effective. And it's a wonderful thing. However, it's not always the answer. Technology is not always the answer. Sometimes it's a much simpler answer that's more cost-effective, and technology is used instead. Right, just because it's there. Well, an example would be like some of the brake light switches on some of the new cars where they've gone to one or even two sensors on the brake pedal that goes through the body control module, goes to the general electronics module, which grounds an SCR to turn the brake lights on. Right. And you get an intermittent problem, and that's like, my God, you had a $3 switch that never went bad. Exactly. How good can this it, be? And if it did, it was a $3 switch. It was a $3 you, switch. You'd replace it and go on about your business. Well, well, that's right. And, I mean, I realize it probably allows them to do some cool stuff. I don't know. Maybe. To I mean, me, it's a lot of complexity. Yeah, it is. It really is. For not a whole lot of gain. You know, you got to kind of look at what you're trying to save and say, does this really accomplish what we're trying to do? You know, my house in Baton Rouge, I have the big glassed-in wall, which is beautiful, but the house gets about 14 years old, and these big double-pane glasses start to leak, so they cloud up, and they look dirty all the time. So I called a glass guy, and I said, hey, what can you do about it? It looks horrible. He said, well, got to replace the windows. Mm -hmm. I said, well, what made this happen? He said, well, they're 14 years old. I said, well, my house in New Orleans is 180 years old. It doesn't have this problem. Oh, but these save energy. I said, they did not save (laughs) $5,000 worth of energy in 14 years. Exactly. That is not the answer to everything. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I will assure you I did not save $5,000 in energy with these things. That, now I got new ones, they look good, but hey, I, another 14 years, maybe I won't be there. There you go. So, yeah, technology is not always the answer to everything. Let's take one more call before the break. We got Tony on the line. Good morning, Tony. Hey, Louie. This is Tony from Princeton, Montana. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing great, sir. All right. So, I emailed you yesterday. I haven't had a chance to check my email yet. Yeah, I answered but... this morning. Oh, Okay. What do you think might be the cause? Tony, that is going to be something that would be impossible to diagnose without having the car in-house. One thing you mentioned, and just to recap for the people who are listening, you said that it seems the car dies on you. Usually it'll start right back up, but then it dies again very intermittently, and you said it may be affected by water, like rain or possibly going through the car wash. What I would do first, Tony, is I would see if I can simulate that. I go drive through the car wash again, maybe even twice, see if that does seem to affect it. If it does, the first thing I would look for would be on the right-hand side down on the floor. Pull that carpet up and see if it's wet in that area. Because if the windshield is leaking at all, that water will run down. The ECM is sitting right there, and there's also a huge junction box down there with a bunch of wires going to it. The reason okay. I say that, we had a Land Cruiser, or actually a Lexus model, the LX470. Yes. Yeah, LX470 in just this week. What happened okay. on here is someone had replaced the windshield previously. There was a molding okay. that runs down the sides of it, which was originally riveted in. When they changed the windshield, they drilled those rivets out, and they drilled the holes too big. So they couldn't put rivets uh-huh. back. They put sheet metal screws, which didn't fit very tight. And okay. water would run in just ever so slightly when it would rain, but it was getting in that junction block, and the car wouldn't start. After it dried out, it would start. So, I mean, wow. without seeing the car, it's just it's, it's, it's there's so really hundreds of things be, that can yeah. cause that. You know, it's just impossible to try to diagnose it, but that would certainly be a starting point. Okay. I will do that, check on that. And Wow, yeah, it's been happening, you know, 
very first time my wife went through a puddle of water mm-hmm. and, and just fall and then hasn't done it. You no, know, it's very, very, everyone's just, you know, very intermittent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see, it could so be I a connector know. that yep. was opened at one point in time and the seal didn't get put back in right or fell out or got cut putting in and water gets in there on a five volt reference. It's just literally, I could probably sit here and tell you, yeah. you know, a hundred different things that could cause it. Right. You're just going to be checking forever. It's one of those things where you have to see if you can duplicate it first. If you can duplicate right. it, if you can't find it, you can bring it to a shop, go run it through a car wash, bring it to the shop, and then at least they'll be able to find it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Willie. All right, man. Well, we sure appreciate it. How's the weather out in Montana this morning? It's actually pretty nice. It's in the mid-60s. Oh, wow. very, very good. <laughs> we love it here. Oh, yeah. It's a little warm here. So it's probably going up in the 80s today. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. All right. Well, thanks for calling. Thank uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, we're going to take our first quick little break, and we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Hey, Mike, heading out for your run? I just knocked out three miles myself. Yep, did my meditation this morning to de-stress, and now I'm going to get a little exercise. Tomorrow I need to take the car into the shop, though. That shaking problem's getting worse. Uh, You know, you should take care of your car like you take care of your body, and it would save you some money. What do you mean? Preventative maintenance is key. Me and Kathy bring our cars in once a year to Agco for a general inspection. They give them the once-over and perform the maintenance needed to keep us on the road. I haven't had any kind of major problem with my cars in forever. I guarantee they would have caught the cause of your shaking issue and fixed it before it became a problem. And probably saved me money, too. Yep. All right, I'm heading home this evening for steak and lobster. Then Kathy and I are going to test run our new hot tub. Surf and turf and a new hot tub? Yeah, and champagne. Saving money on your car allows you to enjoy the finer things in life, Mike, my boy. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us the Automotive Hour. There you go. <laughs> I'm your host, Louis Aldezan, and we sure appreciate you for spending a Saturday morning with us. Hey, you got a question or a comment, go ahead and give us a call. Number is 291-6901, and we've got Steve online. Good morning, Steve. Yes, Good morning. Sir. All right. I got two questions. One of them is the 06 Silverado. Mm-hmm. When I turn the uh, right signal on every now and then, not all the time, that's the problem. It, it blinks real fast, mm-hmm. and other times it works normally. Yes, know? sir. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the blinking real fast means that one of the bulbs is not lighting, and it doesn't mean it's a bulb, obviously, but one of your bulbs is not coming on. It, it works sort of like a circuit breaker, and when the current on the circuit changes, then it's going to blink fast to tell you there's a problem there. What you can have to do is next time it is blinking real fast, go out and look at all of the bulbs, and you can see one of them is not lighting. Now, what he means by all the bulbs, you have the big bulbs that everybody sees, but there's also a smaller bulb in there. It's a um, 194, I think. Something like that, like the and, side marker and right, all that kind of stuff. Right, side marker bulb will do the same thing. Any one of them can do right. that. you got to check all of the bulbs, and you're going to find one of them is not working. And most likely, either the socket is loose, and that's why it works intermittently. Occasionally, you'll get one where the filament in the bulb will break, but it still kind of touches sometimes, and it'll work. And then you hit a bump or something, it quits working. Yeah. Sometimes the socket will burn up. You know, it just See that it a lot. gets discolored and all, and it'll make contact sometimes, sometimes not. So there's lots and lots of things that can cause it. I've even had a turn signal switch cause that, uh, where sometimes the contact would not make on one side or the other. But you, it's going to start out next time it's blinking fast. Get out and look at the lights. Leave them on blinking. One of those bulbs is not coming on, and that's where you got to start with a voltmeter. See if you got voltage going to it. If you got voltage going to it, you know, check the bulb and all that. 
And it doesn't seem like a bulb could be intermittently. Believe me, they, they can do. be. Sometimes they will work, and sometimes <laughs> they won't work. And it, it'll drive you berserk. In fact, I had a picture on my website at one time of a bulb, and the filament dropped down. It burned off right at the wire, and it was a double filament bulb. And it dropped down and contacted the other filament in the bu- <laughs> and, and welded itself together. Oh, my God. And so it was real, real bright because two bulbs were coming on, and the other side didn't work. But it was all in the bulb. I mean, it was it was doing some wild stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'll check that. The other thing is, you know, talking about the fuel pump deal. Mm-hmm. I got an old motorhome been sitting up, and I'm trying to get rid of it. And, uh, and usually I'll run out there and turn the key, and it fired up. It has never failed to start since 1993. Mm-hmm. I bought it new in 93. And it's a Chevrolet chassis with the 454 throttle body and Yes, sir. All right. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, y'all were talking about all the things that could be wrong. And way back then, did, did they have all that? They oh, didn't have all that theft. Yes, crap. sir. Oh, yeah. They had quite a bit of stuff on there, even back that far. My question, first off, Steve, how long has it been sitting? Oh, it's been, it's been sitting since 09 was the last inspection I got on it. Wow. Yeah. You know what could have happened is the fuel in it may have just yeah. gotten so bad that it just won't run anymore. Any fuel with ethanol in it is going to go through phase separation after six months. And you may have a bunch of water in the bottom of that tank. The very first thing I think I would try to do, and, of course, it's a pretty big job to drain the tank on that thing, but you might get somebody to do a fuel pressure test and see if you got fuel pressure. If you do, do a fuel sample. Most likely that fuel is going to be highly, highly highly contaminated. contaminated. You might get lucky by draining the tank and refilling it with fresh fuel. I know the motor will run because I fill up a little squirt bottle right. with, uh, with gas. Right, you just squirt some good gas in there. As long as I squirt it in there, it'll yeah. run like a clock. Yeah, <laughs> sir. Uh huh. And see, too, if that fuel has completely separated and sludged up, it could even took the fuel pump out. Okay. That can happen also, but. Yeah, they want to drop that 60-gallon tank. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a job. I, can I can't tell you. even move it like it where it is. You know, it's in the shed, and I got to, you know, I got to get it running. Yes. Yeah, so, well, to even get rid of it, you got to get it running. All so, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you might just try to sneak a siphon hose down in there, a hose, and get your little pump and see if you can pump it out and put some fresh gas. Don't put a lot, but maybe put yeah. five gallons in there and just see if it'll go ahead and crank for you. I mean, yeah. the other option is the, the fuel could have took the pump out, too, but. I mean, I would certainly try that first because, regardless, even if you put a pump, you got to get the gas cleaned out. Right. Okay. All righty. All right. Thank you. Mike. Thanks for calling, man. Bye bye. All right. Two nine one sixty nine zero one is the number. If you're part of the automotive, I we'd love to have you. And we got Al Line. Good morning, Al. Morning, Lewis. Yes, sir. A question for you. You betcha. My wife bought a GPS that plugs into the ODP uh, on, on uh, OB, OBD. OBD, uh-huh. OBD. Yes, uh-huh. sir. Mm-hmm. And I'm just a little leery of plugging. Yeah, I would like be. My- I would be. Al, I have seen so, so many people come in with just weird problems that started all of a sudden that they can't explain. And if something's plugged into that OBD2 connector, I don't like to plug anything into and that that plug is meant for diagnostics only only it, and it ties right into the yeah. ecm and any of, kind of little i mean we get these little deals that are supposed to be for our own online diagnostics and all and the cars getting hard to starters dying or it's doing this or it's doing that we take that out and fix it batteries going dead just all kinds of weird stuff i mean if you want to use it going down the road that's one thing, and if it doesn't seem to cause any problems, maybe, but I would certainly unplug it at night. I yeah. would not leave it plugged into that connector. There's so many cheap ones out there that are really good that don't plug into the air. I don't know why. That well, it's, would... it's convenient. There's a power and a ground in that plug, yeah. and that's they're using a lot of that 
to power up the GPS yeah, unit. Yeah, and really, it's not designed for that at all. It's not. I, mean, I would go to a cigarette lighter plug-in. Uh, we, we, we run uh, Garmin. Mm-hmm. Just, just given to my wife, and she wanted to use it. I said, don't touch it until I talk to Lewis. Yeah, I would. I certainly would not leave it plugged no. in, especially overnight. I've seen a lot, a lot of times where those can cause your battery to go dead and all that because they'll backfeed something and keep something awake. I mean, if you just want to use it going down the road, occasionally thing, it probably yeah. would be okay but i wouldn't leave it plugged in by any stretch of the imagination that's what i need to hear you tell me okay have a good one all right Al, Thank thanks call man you bet you. bye-bye bye-bye all right you know that kind of goes with everything i i'm not big on leaving anything plugged into a car i'm not either because it wasn't designed for having anything left plugged in with the car is off right even some of these cell phone chargers and all right i have heard where those have caught fire You'll overheat it because it's a little transformer. That's in there. all it is. And it's plugged to battery power. They can end up overheating, maybe burning the car up, certainly causing backup problems because that computer is sitting there looking at the electrical system. Anything that's pulsing that system that does not belong there, it could certainly cause an issue. So well, sure. It, it wakes up the computer, and once one is awake, it starts looking for the rest of the, the computers on the network. And before long, they're all awake, pulling a volt, two volts at a time right. out of the battery. And it don't take long for to pull a battery down at that kind of voltage. Yeah, you can definitely suck a battery dead with those kinds of things and cause just weird, oh, weird, weird, weird problems. Stuff. It's kind of like we get cars in sometimes and someone's hooked like these little neon lights up and right. stuff. And they've tied into the electrical system somewhere. And those things operate at a frequency and they can cause some, some backup stuff. Yep. I mean... I know it's cool to kind of customize a car. I know everybody wants to do it, and there's probably ways you could do it. You could isolate it with a relay or something sure. from the electrical system, but you need to get someone who knows what they're doing, or you need to do your diligence and get a book and read and, and find out how out. to isolate this from the basic electrical system of the car if you just hell-bent on doing it Yeah, because you can end up with problems that, They'll drive you crazy. You'll never get them diagnosed because they just, it's so weird and intermittent. And, and it, a lot of, it was never designed to be on the car. Right. A lot of times it doesn't relate back to what you had installed. That's right. We used to see that with aftermarket radios a, a lot. A lot. Where they put a radio in and then the dash quits working. Right. The indicators on the dash start going crazy and not working and all that. And what it is, that dash is talking to the radio. Sure. In fact, a lot of the cars now don't have the little chimes and warning buzzers and all. All that goes through the radio speakers. It does. So it all ties all back in, and it's got CAN network. Through so the body module. It's all talking. It's using that as a chime. Most of them have speed-dependent volume and all, yep. where the faster you go, the higher it'll turn your radio volume. When you slow down, it cuts it down for you automatically. You don't even realize it's doing it. But it's got lots and lots of computerized stuff that's tied into that. And, and it's you, all looking for a signal. And it wants a certain one. There are some cars you take the radio out and it won't even start. Right. You know, if you, uh, it messes the security system up. Well, that's right. And the security system may be tied into it. All sorts of things may be tied into it. So before you go and just hook in an aftermarket radio or aftermarket GPS or aftermarket anything, Do you got homework. to really, really check and make sure yep. this is not going to give you some serious grief <laughs> hey one more quick little break and a lot more on the way hey jim becky said you were in the office and whoa what is up with all the charts and graphs buddy oh i'm using my system i've developed to keep up with the maintenance on my three cars is that an armillary sphere yes yes it is so the oil gets changed every third full moon brake pads divide the years becky and i've been married by our oldest son's age timing belt is leap year 
except when it's on y the time. You know there's a better way, right? I just take my cars into Agco once a year for a general inspection. They give me an honest opinion on the maintenance and repairs I need. Sometimes it's just an oil change and they send me on my way. One time, they caught something that could have led to a huge repair. Saved me thousands. Wow, that sounds great. You know, I'm always trying to save money any way I can. Uh, let me get Agco's number online and uh, give them a call. Is that dial-up? Dude, there's a better way to save money. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan. Mr. Brian Terry sitting here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go ahead and give us a call. It's 291-6901. And should you happen to miss your opportunity today to get a live answer, you can always get your questions answered through our website. It's agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just fill out the form and send it on in. There you go. Couldn't be any easier than that. And we get a lot of questions. I guess there's certain ones that I seem to get more and more and more uh, fairly frequently. Uh -huh. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that between the calls All right. today. You know, one of the questions that I get a lot, I think it's a good question, and is what is the difference between a strut and a shock? Okay. I, I get that question probably at least once a week. And the basic answer is they both do the same job. Right. That and is the, the basic down-the-line final well, they both do this. All struts are basically shocks, but not all shocks are struts. Right. If that makes sense. What technically the difference is, they both dampen motion. They resist motion called jounce rebound. Correct. Because when the car goes down, it's jounce, and when it pops back up, that's called rebound. And they are there. They do not support weight. They are just there to dampen the jounce rebound. Now, the difference is a strut is a structural component. So... Parts of the strut itself do support weight. The shock part of it does not, but the strut housing may take the place of the upper control arm. Right. It's a heavier design. Technically, the two are kind of blurred today because they use so many different designs that some things could either be called a shock or a strut. Some could be this, that, or other. For instance, you have the coilover shock, which is supporting some weight, and it is sort of structural in a way, although it is a shock. And you have some struts which do not support any weight. So it's kind of a blurry line. It is. Really and truly, it's not important to know the difference, only that there are two different parts, two different names, and they, they're almost interchangeable today. Depending on the application, when you change a strut, if let's, let's talk a Honda Accord. Mm -hmm. Certain years had a upper and lower control arm and a knuckle. Right. That was the suspension part, and then it had a coil around the shock. Strut, the shock in the front that actually held the vehicle up. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the later ones went to a strut assembly, which had a lower arm, a knuckle, and then the strut assembly without the upper control took arm. Took the place of the took upper control the place. arm. So that would technically be a strut. Correct. That is where your alignment is at. Mm -hmm. So anytime that component comes off, the alignment has to be reset. Right. Now, to complicate it even further, you could have a torsion bar on the lower control arm an upper strut, which does take the place of the control arm, but it does not support weight. Right, because the torsion bar torsion does. Torsion bar is supporting the weight. Right. So there's several different designs out there. The point is, any professional, if you say shock or strut, he's going to know sure. seriously what you're talking about. Sure. It's just a matter of semantics now more than a technical importance. Right. And you know, they may use the word shock. They may use the word strut. But you can kind of... 
from a non-technical standpoint, you can pretty much call them the same the thing, same thing. Or, or a very similar thing. You're going to have the same symptom, which is it's going to bounce around a lot when right. they wear out or it's going to make noise or it's going to rattle or whatever. So while they are different, I don't think the technical difference is that important to most people. Right. They if, both do the same job. Yeah, it, relay that to the shop. They're going to pretty much adapt, adapt. to what it is that you're <laughs> being there. Uh-huh. So, hey, let's go back to our phone lines with Paul. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, gentlemen. Recently, on two different vehicles, I've removed the back wheel to change the tire because it's flat, mm-hmm. and the wheel won't come off after you've taken the lead nuts. What could cause that? What part of the country do you live in, Paul? I'm in Baton Rouge. Oh, you're in Baton Rouge. Most of the time, if you've got all the lug nuts off and the wheel doesn't want to come off, there's some corrosion around the center hole where it goes over the hub. Now, okay. this is really, really common up. The reason I asked where you, where you live is up in the north in the Rust Belt states, road salts and stuff can get in there and it can cause that to happen. It can also happen for, I guess, any number of other reasons, but most of the time that's going to be, how do you normally get it off? Do you have to hit on the back of the wheel with something? Well, I couldn't get it off. I do kind of roadside assistance, mm-hmm. and I haven't been able to get it off, and I didn't want to, like, get it too hard and knock it off the jack. Yes, sir. So I just called for a tow truck. Yes, sir. I would say, and again, depending on where the vehicles are being operated, if they're being operated up in the areas where they salt the roads, most likely it's some corrosion getting on those hubs. What we've had pretty good luck with, Paul, and and does not damage the vehicle, if you carry a block of wood, like a good heavy piece of two-by-six, put that behind the wheel and then take a mallet and just hit on it on one side and then go to the other side and hit on it, sometimes it, it'll come loose. You might also try like some WD-40 or some type of dispersant, spray it around that center hole and see if that helps. But, yeah, if all the lugs are off, it should come off. It's just a, that's what centers the wheel on the vehicle that so keeps it from vibrating. It's a tight tolerance to begin with, and any little bit of corrosion it gets in there just kind of makes the two components stick because there's there's so little space there. And what makes it worse, sometimes they're dissimilar metals. You may have a cast iron hub or a steel hub and, and aluminum, aluminum wheel. wheel. So with dissimilar metals, if you get a corrosive in there, you're going to get a real mess going on. Well, the last one was on last Sunday on I-10. A uh, 2015 Buick Regal, mm-hmm. and that, I couldn't get that off. And I, I sprayed WD-40, mm-hmm. and I like I kicked it a few times, but I didn't want to kick it too hard. Right. Yeah, that would be if all the lug nuts are off. I mean, that's yeah. the only thing there is left because there's nothing else to hold it on. But you can kind of rock it a little bit. Like I said, we use a piece of 2 by 6 a heavy. In fact, if you can find a piece of oak, like off an old uh, shipping pallet or something, yeah, that works yeah. well. Just put it on the back and take a mallet and just tap it on one side and the other side and just work your way side and side, and generally they'll go ahead and work their way off. So I'll carry that with me in the future. All righty. All right, thanks so much. All right, Paul, thanks for calling, man. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to part of the automotive aisle, we would absolutely love to have you. You know, even down here in Baton Rouge, we still see sticking hubs and you boat wheels You can and still stuff. get that, particularly yeah. if they drive through something. Like, let's say there's some chemical that has gotten onto the road some way or another, mm-hmm. uh, be it a chloride or just whatever, some type of corrosive chemical. You run through it, and maybe there's a mud puddle, and it sloshes on there and starts to uh, react with that metal. When you have dissimilar metals, you already have the propensity for corrosion because right. they want to react with each other. And we talked a few weeks ago very, very heavily about lug nuts and all that, yeah. not putting any kind of lubricants or any of those things on lug nuts. Now, the exception is that center hole, if you want to put a little bit of never season that center hole, 
to prevent this type of problem. That is not going to hurt anything. You just don't want to get crazy with it because it's spinning and you don't want it to sling out and get on the lug nut. Exactly. So, but if you want to put a thin coat of never seize on that centerpiece, that would probably be acceptable. Alternatively, you could take a wire brush of some sort, clean it up and real good, clean that up very, very good. Get the corrosion <laughs> off of it. The wheel is fairly easy to clean up because it's a flat surface with a few holes in it. It's fairly easy to clean, but when you start trying to clean the hub, mm-hmm. you've got the lug nuts, the sticking lug studs out sticking it. out, and you've got the hub sticking out, and it's it's hard to get a square brush in there to get them perfectly clean. Mm-hmm. So if you could stop it before it started, you would mm-hmm. be a whole lot better off. And a lot of them I've noticed are anodized. Uh, I know some of the GM products, they'll be like blue or something. Mm. Called. They're anodized or heat treated or whatever to try to prevent that kind of stuff. Some of them are made of a stainless-type material, and there's all sorts of ways the automakers, because they realize this can happen. Right. But, again, it just depends on where the vehicles are operated as to how bad the problem's going to be. I would imagine if you live in Arizona, you would probably never see that problem. Exactly. It, it's very dry. You don't have a lot of stuff that's going to get on the wheel. You don't really see a lot of rusting and stuff in that area. But, on the other hand, up in Detroit and well, Michigan. And even South Louisiana, if you live on the Gulf Coast somewhere. Sure. If you live in Grand Isle, guess what? You're going to oh, have yeah, a whole lot of corrosion. I remember we had a little Toyota truck come in. The frame had rusted in half. Right. You may remember that. You had to I did. I fabricate a frame section and put it back together for him. Yeah. But, again, he lived down on the Gulf Coast. So, because you're in the South and you don't use salt on the road doesn't mean there's not salt. Even if you live in New Orleans, out close to the lake, there's some salty areas. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots and lots of places that salt can get on a vehicle. And in Baton Rouge, it's not such a big problem, particularly if the car has always been operated in Baton Rouge. But when you get out to some of the outlying areas, you can really have a problem with that, particularly on pickup trucks and stuff where maybe you go saltwater fishing and you back the truck down into the water. Right. And like I said, if that salt that, water gets on it, that, that clings to the, to the body and it starts to, to form a rust. Yeah, it's, it's a heavy, heavy corrosive, and it's going to, particularly if you have dissimilar metals there, it's going to really get a problem. So, hey, I see it's just about time for our final little break. We're going to go ahead and get that out of the way, and that'll leave us plenty of time to answer questions when we get back. So, Tina, are you interested in shopping next weekend? Oh, well, me and Harold leave for our European cruise on Friday. Another cruise? What? Are you all blowing the kids' inheritance? (laughs) No, we're just smart with our money. Like, our cars are paid off, and we're big on preventative maintenance. Harold takes them in once a year to Agco for a general inspection. They check everything out and perform maintenance on what we need to keep the cars running right. You'd be surprised on how fast you can save for a cruise without two car notes. (laughs) Wow, I never thought of that. I had time to do a little shopping this afternoon, though. I've got to get Harold a bathing suit. He keeps saying he wants one of those tiny Speedo suits because that's what everybody wears in Europe, and I cannot let that happen. Okay, now I have an image of Harold strutting around the pool in a Speedo. I think I'm going to book a general inspection from Agco to clear my mind. He wanted hot pink, too. (laughs) Tina, stop. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, president of Agco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here on by my side. Between two of us, we will sure answer any questions you can put to us. Why don't you go and give us a call, 291-6901. And we've got John online. Good morning, John. Hi, Louis and Brian. Hey, John. Hello. What's going on, buddy? Hey, you there? Hey, John, could you call right back? It's breaking up. we got a bad cell. If you can call right back, we'll put you straight up to the top of the list. We've just... Calls breaking up so bad we couldn't even hear you. 
that's a John from Toronto. Yeah. Always an interesting question. He listens to the show basically every week. Right. And he does a lot of research and stuff on his own. So generally when he poses a question, it's an it's interesting pretty, question. Yeah. So I, wish, I hope he calls right back. I just, I guess when you call an international like that on a sale, you right. get a bad get sale. A and, you know, we were talking about some of the calls and some of the email. questions and email that we get. Another question that I think is a very good one. And that's where a person is faced with a fairly large repair right. on a car, and they want to know, is it worth it to do this? Correct. And that has that question can be answered a couple different ways, depending on the situation. I can give you two specific schools of thought, and there are those people who say, well, the transmission goes out, it costs $3,000. Right. The car is worth $3,000. It is not worth it for me to put $3,000 on a $3,000 car. Okay. So I'm just going to junk the car and walk off. And I understand that, and that's fine. The other school of thought is, okay, it doesn't matter what someone else says this car is worth. It's what it's going to cost me from getting point A to point B. Correct. And another car, if it's a new one, is going to probably be 30000 plus. A used one's probably going to be 15000 or so yes. and may have some of the same problems. This one's 3000 to fix. It is way cheaper for me to spend the 3000 get this car fixed than it is to spend 30 or even 15 to get from point A to point to, B. And cuz either way I'm getting from point A to point B. Sure. And so those are the two different schools of thought. Now another way to look at it is that this vehicle right now in a non-running condition is basically worthless. I mean, it might bring $500, maybe $1,000 at a salvage yard, maybe, maybe, probably not, but whatever it is, it's going to be a very, very low amount. Now, let's say you elect to put 3000 into it. Now, you drive it for two years, three years, and then you sell it running, and you can still get your 3000 back out of it. Because exactly. most cars, once they get to that point, are not going to get a whole lot lower. Almost any car that runs, if the air conditioning works, it gets down the road, it's will worth. bring $3,000. Sure. It's just it's worth that to somebody to have a car that gets them down the road. So, I mean, those are the two different schools of thought, and it just depends. I always ask people when they ask me that question, well, do you like the car? Mm-hmm. Does it do what you yeah, need what do you to mean? do? Well, I love the car. It's been a great car. Okay, well, if you love the car, the cheapest way to get from point A to point B is to fix what you got. Sure. Now, if you say, no, I hate this car. I've always hated this car. I've just been looking for an excuse to get rid of it. Well, hey, it's a great <laughs> time it. to Now's bail. Time. Yeah, don't even consider it. Just go ahead and bail on it. Move on. You don't owe it anything. It's not a human life. It's not a family member. Sure. You know, you can get emotionally involved with a car, and I think that's the oh, wrong man. the wrong plan. You and can spend some money on one if you get involved that way, too. You really can, and that kind of leads us into the second phase of this same question and that is when do you get rid of a car when do you pull the plug on it right and what i've always tried to do is to take all my expenses and balance them out per month and look at how much it's costing me per month to drive this car and there are months when i spend absolutely no money at all sure there are months where i may spend fifteen hundred dollars and the thing is if i look at a big repair like say twenty four hundred dollars I've got to have a budget. I've got to say it is worth this much per month for me to have this car. Now, my figure for my cars is $200 a month. Okay. That is what it's worth for me to drive this car, $200 a month, because I know I can't buy, lease, rent, or borrow a car for $200 a month. Sure. I'm probably going to be in the $500 or $600 range for anything that I might choose to buy. Now, if I'm looking at a $2,400 repair, I have to ask myself, could I realistically assume if I put this money into this car – 
I can drive 12 more months with, with no, no repair or very, very little repair. Right. Now, if the answer is yes, then I'm on budget. It's a good deal. I go ahead and I do it, and I move on. If the answer is no, that's when it's time to bail. Yep. If you cannot realistically assume that you can stay within your budget, and it's kind of a guess, I guess, on some point, like anything else, you just have to take all the facts you have. There's always going to be some risk involved because you can always guess wrong. But you can minimize that with a little research. You have to evaluate where you're working with also. That's you know, right. Is this vehicle, like you were saying, is this vehicle going to go this much further? Well, we need to look at it. Does it need tires? Does the air conditioning still work? Is the transmission slipping? Is the motor knocking? You know, you got to take an evaluation of what the overall vehicle, shape of the vehicle is in. Well, and that's where a general inspection comes in very handy. And I recommend that to people who have a large repair that they're being faced with. Some of our customers will have a breakdown. We've maintained their car. It's I know it's in excellent condition because they've always taken care of it. Sure. Other people, we hadn't seen them before. They come in with a major breakdown. The first thing I'm going to suggest is go ahead and invest a little bit more. Let's, look let's it do over. a general inspection. Because let's say you need a transmission in this car, and that's going to be $3,000. Okay, that may or may not be a good deal. But let's say the air conditioning compressor is also knocking. The transmission fluid is burned. Yep. It needs four tires, and the brakes are metal on metal. Well, now you're an intake manifold is leaking. Well, now you're no, yeah, it, it's a no-brainer. It's time to bail on right. this car. It's just gone too far. It's got too many problems. It's going to be a continuing problem to you. It's going to exactly. be a, basically a money pit. You check the rest of the car. Everything else is good on it. The brakes are good. The air conditioning works good. The transmission looks sound. The overall car is in good shape. There's no codes. There's no pending codes in memory. Well, yeah. Now you, then can, we're now, now at, you can assume that you've got a good product to start with, mm -hmm. to work with. And, you know, I had this decision to make on my car recently where the air conditioner went out in it. Right. And at first I assumed, well, maybe it's got a little leak and the refrigerant leaked, Just out, leaked out. But we checked it and it's full of refrigerant. I said, okay, well, I know I got a much bigger problem. So Chris breaks the lines and they're full of material. It looks like the filter dryer may have ruptured on it. It went out through the system. It plugged the expansion valve. It plugged the condenser and start to starve the compressor for oil. Now I've got to make a decision because I'm looking at a major repair, basically complete replacement of the air conditioning unit. Sure. But I know that car. I know I have taken care of it. It's got 165,000 miles, but that car will go another 100,000 oh, miles because it's in excellent condition other than the air conditioner, which has failed. We go through, we rip the entire air conditioning system out, put a whole new one in. Works perfect. I've driven it. I've probably already put another four or 5,000 miles since then. Sure. And, you know, that is an example of a good investment in my, to me, mm -hmm. because I'm still, if I balance out what I've spent, the last time I checked it, I was down somewhere around $160 a month, which no, is well perfect. below my $200 budget. Sure. And that's including buying the car, tires on it, all change. That includes all the money that I put into this car over the whole life of the car. Right. And this car is 12, 13 years old. That's right. So, I'm hoping to at least get it to 15 years and maybe another uh, 50 to 100,000 miles. At some point, I'm probably going to just want to trade because I do go on the road a lot with the car. You get to a point where it's getting hard to get parts for it and those sorts of things. So there will probably come a time when I am ready to upgrade. Right. Now, when I upgrade, rather than go down and buy a new car, which is probably the worst investment you can make. Sure. I mean, where else can you take and invest Thirty to $50,000 and lose 25% of it in the first year. Exactly. I mean, basically, you drive the car off the lot 
you lost yeah what, go percent oh probably 20 25 percent go try to trade it in and see what you're gonna get yeah. for it you know just drive out in the street and drive right back yeah in the go lot. right back in and you probably just took a 20 percent hit on it rather than me take that kind of a hit because it's going to be somewhere around 20 to 25 percent the first year depending on the kind of car probably around 15 to 20 percent the second year and somewhere around 10 to 15 percent the third year you've dropped almost 50 percent in the first three years yeah three years I want to walk in, buy the car 50% under its normal value, right. and then go from there. Right. And, and a three-year-old car, is, as long as all was changed in it, yeah. it doesn't really need Maintained. anything else. Yeah. That's, yeah. One okay. of the, that's one of the things about buying a three-year-old car. Well, that's right. And I have people say, well, I'm scared to buy a used car, and I do understand that apprehension. Sure. I don't want to buy anyone else's problems. Well, that can certainly happen. It can happen. But almost every competent shop can do what they call a pre-purchase inspection. I know we do a lot of them at Agnes. We do. And we can go through this car from one end to the other. And I'm going to tell you, there are very, very, very few things that are going to get by me. I can generally tell you if the car has been flooded. I can tell you if it's been wrecked. I can tell you if it has pending problems. I can tell you if it's been patched. I can tell you if the maintenance has not been done. Now, nobody is a mind reader. You're not going to be 100%. But what you have done is you have elevated your odds way, way, way up yep. at that point. So the odds of a problem. Are, are very low and the savings more than makes up for the, uh, yeah. the difference yeah that's one of those that's where i would want to be i would want to be in a three-year-old yeah three-year-old car without savings. any problem yeah and go from there hey i see we're just about totally out of time we're gonna start backing on out of here tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every saturday morning on the automotive hour like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week and tell your friends and go to the written review part of your rebroadcast service and there put it go. out. There you go. Sure appreciate it. Preceding opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.